everybody, and welcome back to the Manga Sensei Podcast, the podcast where 365 days a year I break down the world's best language in five minutes or less. And every single weekend I, I interview the movers and shakers in Japanese. And today I have a very, very special guest. Today I'm interviewing、um, Isaac Meyer, who, Meyer, Meyer, Myers. Meyer. Myers. I want to make sure. I, I grew up with the Myers, so I had to double check. He uh, is uh, probably the biggest influence outside of my wife for starting the Manga Sensei podcast. You may know him from the Japan History podcast and also his new podcast coming out this, thurs- this previous Thursday about, ja- about crime all over the world, which is going to be very, very exciting. But、uh, Isaac, why don't you give everyone a more thorough introduction of yourself? Hi, hi everybody.、Uh, so. My name is Isaac, and I grew up.、Uh, I was born in、uh, the West Coast in beautiful Olympia, Washington. Grew up in New York State, ended up going to college in Connecticut,、uh, to Wesleyan University. And while I was there,、uh, my academic advisor, when I told her I wanted to study Japanese language,、uh, told me that there was a wait list for the class, so I should take Chinese instead because it's basically the same thing.、Uh, <laughs> And I did not take that advice.、Uh, I toughed through, and I,、uh, everybody dropped after the first,、uh, the first big load of homework in Japanese 101. And so I got in, and、uh, it,、oh, it all went uphill from there. Holy smokes. Yeah, I remember that. I actually was a TA for Japanese 101 and 102. Oh, man. But you got some that was a- good stuff from that. <laughs> That was an exciting experience. And I, the thing was, I had、uh, just take, lived two years in Japan. I came back. The teacher, bless her heart, was a lady who was kind of thrust into the position, had never taught Japanese before. She had just studied in Japan. She was a lady from the Ukraine, and she didn't have very good Japanese, unfortunately. And, but I had to take the class from her. Um, to be able to TA for the class. So I took 101 and 102 after, inter- after being the translator for a couple of national monuments in Japan, which was a great class to raise your GPA.、Um, <laughs> otherwise, really, really boring. I mean, you gotta, you gotta enjoy those freebies when they come your way. It's true. It's a lot of like extra homework. And it's the ones, those kind of homework that you're gonna like almost forget. You're like, oh yeah, I gotta write all the hiragana. <laughs> like. <laughs> Like, well, I guess review, review is always nice, right? Exactly, exactly. And it was kind of fun being able to teach and kind of help the teacher out with people that were struggling. Be like, you know, no, here, this, this makes sense. And the textbook is kind of wonky. Let's kind of go over、uh, how I actually memorize this or whatever it was. it was. I really enjoyed it, actually, as ironic as it is.、Uh, see, that, my experience,、um, the weed out for Japanese 101 to get out all the people who didn't want to study was you had to get all of the hiragana down within the first four days. And then you had an additional week to pick up all of katakana. And then, like, they stopped using any romaji after that.、Uh, Holy smokes. And so, that, yeah, was, the whole idea was you'd have like 30 people at the first class, and then they'd get that <laughs> homework assignment, and the next day there'd be like 12. <laughs> it was pretty effective.、Uh, it was a strong power move. Yeah, no kidding. Like, I, man, I, I'm surprised they took so long katakana because you rarely use katakana, but they only give you like four days for hiragana. Yeah, I think a lot of it was just they really wanted to emphasize moving away from romaji really quickly. So that was the speed of hiragana. And then the katakana was more, you know, we, we know it's a fast ask for you. So we're going we're gonna to hit the brakes a little bit. Though I feel like, gotcha. I feel like we also had some kanji in that second week, but God, it's been like 
Oh, over <laughs> 10 years at this point. Oh, God, that's terrifying. Yeah, well, it, it, it happens fast. And since then, you've not only been able to get through Japanese 101, 102. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a big step for me. But it is. It takes But you've also gone to uh, teaching Japanese and researching Japanese in Japan. And you've also started a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful podcast on uh, iTunes and everywhere else. Um, but kind of bridge the gap first of all. What happened between 102 and uh, starting up a uh, – doing? Well, let's just start with research in Japan. Uh, sure. So a lot of the credit for that goes to uh, someone who I'm pretty sure is still at Wesleyan, Dr. William Johnston, uh, who was our only Japan specialist. It was a pretty small school, uh, but who was an absolute badass, uh, just an incredible teacher and ran great courses – and really kicked me in the uh, in the butt. Uh, in my junior year, he told me that I, my Japanese was getting to the point where I should do original research in Japanese language to write my uh, undergraduate thesis. And pointed me in the direction of some of the digital resources maintained by the uh, the, Jap- the National Diet Library in Tokyo. Um, wow. And so I ended up translating I my. Uh, my initial interest in Japanese was sparked by Kendall. I did it for eight years, and I'm kind of getting back into it now. And really, uh, I yeah, I made a Nidan before I ended up having to quit to work on graduate school, and now I finally have free time again. So that's awesome. Uh, so my plan was to do a undergrad paper on the history of Kendo. Uh, so I dug around for some resources, found a couple of old manuals from the early to mid Meiji period, um, and basically I was, I, th- I figured, Oh, you know, I'll just translate them. How hard can it be? I can, you know, read a newspaper with a dictionary very slowly at this point, but I can do it. So, you know, how, how difficult can it be? Uh, of course. And it turns out, uh, Meiji era Japanese, uh, is really hard. Uh, the grammar is more in line with what we would call classical Japanese, uh, than modern Japanese. And a lot of stuff was handwritten, which, Oh God. Um, and so it was a lot of, I had a a good Japanese friend to help me parse some stuff out. Um, and I made it through eventually. And for some reason I enjoyed the experience enough that then I went looking at graduate schools, uh, got applied or applied and got accepted to the university of Washington to work with Ken Pyle, uh, on Japanese history. And that was how I kind of ended up going down the rabbit hole of uh, working of academia uh, with a brief detour. I actually worked at Nintendo for a year to try my hand at the corporate gig, but it was not for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel you. There. I, I did get to see the president <laughs> of Nintendo dance to never going to give you up though. And that was pretty, that was special. That was a beautiful moment. That's, that's a special thing that really very few people get to, you know, it's like, that's like Mitt Romney doing Gangnam style. You know? Oh my God. It was, it, it's forever seared into my mind when I close my eyes at night. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I, I, uh, I actually, it was while I was working at Nintendo, I decided I wanted to go back to, because I'd done a master's originally, I decided I wanted to go back for my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. And I was doing some kind of reading to keep my, you know, keep my head in shape. Um, and what was, I was reading, doing my first big read through of Marius Jansen's The Making of Modern Japan, which if you mm-hmm. want the history of Japan from 1600 in 800 pages or less, that is probably the way to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. If, yeah, if you just have, you know, time to read an 800-page book here and there. Um, Every once in a while. And yeah. Carol, uh, Carol Gluck's Japan's Modern Myths and a few other things. But I've, 
I was reading all that and I kind of had started thinking about it would be fun to do a project on the side. I really, I believe very strongly in the idea that academics have a responsibility to take what they're doing and present it to the public at large to try and bridge that gap between academia and the, the people, the masses, the regular folks, uh, folks with decent paying jobs. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I wanted a project and I figured, you know, how hard can podcasting be? And then I learned about audio engineering and realized that it can be awful, awfully hard. Um, but I still enjoyed it. And so I decided to start the history of Japan in, uh, early 2013 now. Uh, so over five years ago at this point. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, for, if you haven't picked up yet on this podcast that I really like that and you should be listening for the past year. And I probably mentioned this three or four times, go there, learn about Japanese history, learn about, you know, the romance of Jap of Japanese history and the samurai and the modern Japan and kawaii culture and everything else. And it will, uh, make your life much better. I I really lucked out. I have very good material to work with. Uh, Japanese history is incredibly fascinating and often really outside of a couple of events, very underexplored in uh, English language sort of popular literature. Um, yeah, but the field is really, I think academically starting to hit its maturity in a lot of ways. So it's a really great combination of good material to work with. Uh, and you know, lots of good academic resources to draw from and a really kind of an open space to share it with people. Um, so I really, uh, a lot, a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, a lot of uh, luck on my part in that sense. It's true, but I'll, it also really t goes well into how you tell the story and kind of give people a good bit of background, and it doesn't seem so stiff. I mean, I've gone through history classes at university where it's just like, we're going to memorize 150 dates this semester. Please remember them all. You must learn how to write them in romanized form, regardless if you speak the language. Um, we will not be touching on these parts of history. And you're just like, this is going to be very, very, very exciting. And then just kind of cry yourself to sleep every night as you're memorizing flashcards <laughs> of dates. But... <laughs> So I think it's it's I think I like how you tell the story and it's very straightforward. But at the same time, you don't just aren't you don't just lock yourself into fifteen minutes once a week and kind of get stuck in kind of with a time period, you know. Thank you. I thank you. I uh, I would love to say that I put a lot of careful thought into it, but really, I just listened to two other podcasts that really inspired me: uh, Mike Duncan's History of Rome, and then yes. the China History podcast, uh, Laszlo Montgomery's. Um, wonderful project and i decided that i loved mike duncan's style uh, and wanted to imitate it and i loved the format that mm -hmm. laszlo had picked and also i mean you can't really do i think japanese history without knowing some chinese history as well it's true. um and i had to really the great fortune to talk to laszlo a few years back and you know just have a nice little back and forth about podcasting and life the universe and everything he's a wonderfully wonderfully kind human being a truly great dude um but those two, uh, those two folks really convinced me of the approach that I wanted to take um, of doing something that was episodic, relatively short chunks, but not bound too tightly to any chronology um, mm -hmm. for two reasons. First of all, I wanted to be able to do something if it felt timely or interesting for whatever reason. Um, I was really happy that I ended up with the timing working out for me to do, for example, a history of the uh, dropping of the atomic bomb on yeah. the anniversary. It would have been the 70th anniversary, uh, right around that time. I think that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, 
And second of all, I went especially when I was in graduate school, but even still today, um, honestly, if I just happened to be, you know, working on a particular book for a certain class, it just made sense. Oh, I can write about this. And then I don't, I, you know, I can build when I'm working on the podcast off of what I'm working on outside of the podcast. And there can be some nice synergy there. Right. You know, I actually just read um, Black Rain oh. uh, for the first time a little while ago. That was that was rough. I got to read. Uh, I read good chunks of it in Japanese because I wanted to when I read through a spot. And I was like, I got to go back. And I went and read through big chunks of it in Japanese. And holy smokes. It's quite something. I actually I assigned that to my seniors uh, at the high school I teach at. And it's always it's always memorable, uh, their responses to it. Yes. Yes. It's uh it's the movie, even the old movie, the back, I think it's like, I want to say like 89 or 90. It's a, uh, it's got like Ken Takakura mm. in it and it's, it's a rough, rough, uh, rough film to watch. They got like the whole bodies in the river and the whole nine yards. Oh God. Uh, I actually haven't even seen, I haven't seen the movies. So I have to clearly. It's, it's black and white in the whole nine yards. It's, it's Ooh, real. And you said it was from the nineties. I believe so. Early nineties, ah. but he did it on all black and white on purpose. Okay. I get it. Makes sense. He, he wanted to kind of show like the throwbacks to kind of uh he does have a weird scene that isn't in the book where it has like this weird like shaman lady and you're just like and she like keens for like three minutes in film. You're just like, stop the keening. Who is this woman and why is she in this film? Like that is an un- unusual choice, but uh, I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to take a look. Um, yeah, actually, I'm I'm very fortunate that where I teach now, um, the model is to teach as a humanities program, joint literature and history as a single track. And so mm-hmm. it's really fun for me because I can assign books like Black Rain. I also have some students read Silence, uh, which is something Ooh, I've always Silence really enjoyed. I, um, I mean, enjoyed is not the right word. Something I've always found really interesting. I actually interviewed the uh, the gentleman who does the translations for uh, for Endo Shusaku is uh, at my university here, uh, get, uh, Von Gessel. Oh wow! And he actually got he was the consultant on the movie as well, which is they if you, if you remember the main part where Christ breaks his silence, that was in, uh, incorrectly translated in the first translation of the book. Oh wow! Huh. And so if you get a second, go through that chapter in Japanese and it makes a whole lot more sense. Okay. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to check that out. Cause yeah, I was reading along in English cause I wanted to have the language the kids were using and that did feel a little off. So I'll have to take a look. <laughs> yeah. I'll shoot, I'll shoot you a link. I'll shoot you a link after this, but let's kind of, I'll pull us back right. on track yeah. here. talking Refocus. about Japanese literature and, <laughs> and all the books that we talked about and everything on here in the podcast he referenced will all be below in the show notes, everybody. So don't worry about how to like write it down real fast. I'll have, I have links and everything. So you're, you're okay. <laughs> but so you, you kind of pulled this podcast, you pulled this podcast together and you, you kind of did it, you know, in the middle of your living room for a little while. And, uh, how, how did things, let's kind of go with how things started and kind of where things are at now. Sure. So uh, the initial sort of genesis of it was just me, uh, my copy of Making of Modern Japan, and an old blue snowball uh, USB microphone. Um, yeah. You know, real classic for uh, the sub $50 microphone category. Um, and... I uh, originally my plan had been to put together a short overview of Japanese history. I I think I slated twenty episodes for it and came out to about that if I recall correctly, but it's been a long time. 
Um, and the idea was just to give you a quick overview of, you know, if you're not familiar with it, what's the shape of Japanese history? And then to go back with the uh, further episodes and sort of fill in areas of particular interest. So uh, I think in the initial 50 episodes, I had one on the life of Saigo Takamori, uh, who is this uh, sort of fantastic figure of the late samurai period. Uh, he's the one up, uh, upon whose life the movie The Last Samurai is astonishingly loosely based. Uh, Very loosely, yes. It always frustrated me to no end because the actual story of Saigo Takamori's life, I feel like, didn't need the Hollywood. Like, it was good enough as it was. You didn't need, you know, Tom Cruise running around uh, or any of that nonsense. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I guess that's why I'm not a Hollywood <laughs> film executive. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, what are some of the other ones I did early on? Uh, one on Om Shinrikyo, which was fascinating. Um, yes. It didn't, yeah. I developed an interest actually in the new religions because of that made a note that I wanted to do a series on the history of Omotokyo, uh, which is an earlier new religion that was in constant conflict with especially the imperial government. And I am just now uh, five years later, five and a half years later, getting around to finally writing that series. Uh, which should give you an idea of what some of my my Excel document with all the backlogged plans for what I'm gonna do. Uh, it's it's a mess. There's I'm sure there's some hidden gems in there I need to go through and excavate that I wrote you know six years ago and then just completely forgot that I'd put in there. Right. Um, but now uh, you know I've upgraded my space quite a bit. I have a room I record in so. Uh, if you listen to the early episodes, you might hear a couple of plaintive meows as my cats try and get my attention. Now they have plenty more space to go, uh, you know, bother my wife while I'm trying to record. Um, and a nicer microphone. Um, and I'm now really upgrading to the stage where uh, I have an IKEA box filled with soundproof foam. I stuff my microphone in to kind of catch the uh, the audio backsplash. So really, you know, moving up in the world. Yeah, you know, front room to back room. Now you kind of got well, some things going on. You're 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 in the big leagues. Now. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, the most astonishing thing for me has been actually hearing from people who enjoy the show. You know, early on, I'd get a couple of Facebook comments now and then, or a couple of emails. Uh, now, honestly, the volume of email is such that I have a hard time keeping up with it often. Which, by the way, if anyone has sent me an email and I haven't responded. I am so terribly sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot, but I love you all. Um, uh, but that, that I mean really has been the most heartening thing, especially because with, I feel like with any creative project, um, you know, you always have ones where maybe you're not quite as happy with how it turned out or, you know, you're always kind of left with that lingering, Oh man, it, you know, I just put this episode out, but it just occurred to me, I could have done this and rearranged that and it could have worked so much better. Um, and, you know, moments like that, it's always nice to then get an email from someone saying, oh, how much I, they're enjoying what I'm doing. Um, and it really, you know, it makes the frustration or the hours of trying to figure out how audio engineering works, which still mystifies me. I feel like it's basically black magic. Um <laughs> no, I feel you there. I remember when having, when I first had to hatch a, hash a podcast together because the in, the stuff kept going either in and out or it was kind of like 
discombobulating and kind of how we jump from topic to topic. So I kind of like turned it to like 18 pieces and had to put it all together and find where the music comes in and where it goes out and how it goes up and down. It's uh, it really is black magic. Uh, I mean, I've listened to some of your stuff. I think you're a much better audio engineer than I am. So, you know, you <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. I, I feel pretty confident in that assertion. <laughs> I actually had a friend who I worked with in Japan who, ha- who who has a recording studio, and I had him show me and set the settings. Then I took a picture of it. I'm like, okay, if error changes, just t- look at the picture again and just readjust it to where it has it. And that, that's what helped oh, me when I first started. Oh, that's brilliant. I need to find, find some friends with a recording booth. Just be like, hey, what should this look like? And then just take a picture and kind of go from there. It was it was bad at the beginning. Now I can actually like turn the compressor up and down and kind of feel somewhat confident oh, about that thing. You're a brave soul. It's uh, it takes nerves of steel and uh, you know, five minute podcast. Because if you ruin one, you just bury it in the next four days. Mm, ah, that's, I like that like content strategy. That's good. That's right. So if you go back to, I think I had one where I did like episode like one eighteen had really bad sound quality. I was like, I'll forget this in like a month. And then I went back and like I ended up re-recording it and putting it up there secretly after someone complained like, what's going on? I'm just like, you sound like you're being abducted by aliens. I'm just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's part of the joys of the whole process. Um, yeah. So, um, one thing I did want to make sure we touched upon a little bit is you have a new podcast coming out and it's not necessarily Japanese. It is not. So I'm branching out a little bit, um, in terms of focus, uh, about a year ago, I believe my, uh, my wife came to me with an idea that she'd had to do a more conversational podcast. I do script everything on history of Japan. And uh, yeah, I don't deviate it from it that much. Um, so she wanted to try something a bit looser and more conversational uh, on criminal history, which is something she had an interest in, I had an interest in. And so after a lot of planning and trying to jury rig together an audio setup for two people to record, which has been a lot. What's got us on these stuff? <laughs> Oh my god. Um Yeah, it's been a process. Uh but it's finally we're we're it's going up. Uh the first episode will have gone up. Uh, I think my second episode will be up by the time you all uh, you all hear this. It'll, the Criminal Records Podcast uh criminalrecordspodcast.com is the website or uh criminalrecords.libsyn.com is the RSS feed. It's going to be really cool. But it's also we're not moving. There still be some Japan stuff on there. Um, Japan has a long history of truly fascinating criminals that I would, not, yeah, I would not want to uh, skip out on. And the third episode we have planned is on one of them, uh, Sada Abe, um, or Abe Sada in the Japanese order. Um, right. And if you haven't heard of her, she is the uh, well. I uh, said so she's the Japanese Lorena Bobbitt, and now's the part where I ask you, how graphic am I allowed to get in describing this? Um, um, we PG thirteen. If you curse, I'll just bleep it out. Okay. Um, um, she had a gentleman friend and accidentally strangled him to death in the course of certain acts that you should ask your parents about if you don't know what they are. Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. then decided Kinbaku. Mm-hmm. Don't look it up. And then decided to take a souvenir and that's all i'll say ah. about that uh but it's a really interesting okay. really interesting court case and uh it was a really me- it was a media sensation in japan in the 1930s at a time when the mass media as we think of it was still relatively new um and the way in which the case got magnified by that media presence 
the way in which the sort of importance of Abe, uh, who became this sort of weird, almost uh, like girl power icon of the woman who was able to kind of claim her man in a way uh, at a time when there really was no way for women to stop men sleeping around on them, but they, of course, didn't have that same freedom. Um, The way in which she kind of took on this weird symbolic role in a way that I don't think she was ever really terribly comfortable with. Um, It's really very fascinating. No kidding. I'm trying to remember what author that reminds me of. There's an author and I'm, I'm feeling a book, but I can't place my finger on it. I will put it in the show notes. Don't worry. It will be there. There's a, a woman author and she writes about her husband and how she, you know, she's go- he ha- wants her to go get him a concubine. It's pre-Meiji mm. and she goes and gets a good concubine that's not too pretty but still helpful and he ends up, you know, doting on her like he never doted on uh, his the concubine or like he doted on her and in the end she kind of just like, right, he cares for, she cares for him his whole life then at the end when he wants to be warmed by a blanket she just kind of looks at him looks at him cold and he know, and he learns in that moment just how much she sacrificed and that she ha- she has his life in the palm of his, his hand of her hands Ooh. and i'm just like you sir are a terrible human being and uh should probably l- read more about um you know women killers that will chop off certain members <laughs> well now i definitely want to read that story yeah put it in the show notes I will, i'll take I a will look. find that and put it in the show notes i know i i know i have it on my bookshelf i have a lot of things on my bookshelf but i have that book on my bookshelf That's fantastic so with with this new series, everybody, make sure you go over there. This the, They just released it Thursday. They'll have the next episode coming out. Every, are you going to do it every week on this one? Uh, every other week to start off, and then the plan is to shift okay. to every week at an unspecified point in the future. Awesome. So make sure to go over there. And the biggest thing you can do is make sure you give a written review, and if anything – Put five stars. Four stars are cool, but let's let's face it. No one wants to be second best. Put a five-star rating on there and help them get noticed as one of the new and upcoming podcasts because this will be something big that you can tell your friends about. We're going to be excited. Please, please take a look, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you. Don't um, scream me not. Okay, so one thing I do want to touch on a little bit, as you are the Japanese history guy, is a little bit about Japanese kanji history. I had an email from a, a, a young gal this week. She said she's taking Japanese 102, I want to say. Mm. And she is so confused. First off, why are there so many different readings for a kanji? Mm. So that actually comes out of the unique history of how kanji sort of fit into Japanese, uh, which involves getting a little bit into the linguistics of Japanese versus Chinese. Chinese mm-hmm. is what we, what fancy linguistic types call an argumentative language. And it doesn't mean people like yelling at each other, though, in my experience in China, that was often the case. Uh, Fair enough. It means that the structure is similar to English. Uh, the sort of subject, verb, object is the standard order of a sentence. And if you're modifying your verb, the modifications go in front. Uh, you know, I speak Japanese. I learned to speak Japanese. I was speaking Japanese. Um, the modification of the verb always goes in front. Japanese is an agglutinative language. Agg- I can't even say it. Agglutinative language. Pretty sure I got it. that right. Um, you did. <laughs> thank you. Fantastic. Uh, so that means that the modifications, first of all, that in Japanese is subject, object, verb, and that modifications to the verb go after the verb. So not only are the, is the grammar different, but the basic structure of the language is not the same. 
And so when the Japanese were trying to figure out basically how to port uh, Chinese characters over into Japanese uh, to build an alphabetic system, or a phonetic system, I should say. Alphabetic is not technically accurate. Um, the ideographic syllabary that is Japanese uh, characters. Yes, really, it really rolls off the tongue. Um, yes. So a couple different approaches were attempted there. Uh, first was something that we call manyogana. Uh, we call it that because the place you see it the most is something called the manyoshu, which is one of the first real uh, major collections of Japanese poetry. Uh, and this yes. is written essentially with Chinese characters being used phonetically. So, for example, you have the an in anzen, um, or in heian, and it's pronounced just as a phonetic ah sound. Um, and the whole thing is basically written out in that way. So if you tried to read it in Japanese, or excuse me, in Chinese, it would just be complete gobbledygook. But if you know roughly what the sounds correspond to in Japanese, it spells something out phonetically. Um, right. However, uh, there were some issues with that. Chiefly, uh, Chinese, you can distinguish a lot of similar sounds based on tone. Japanese, it doesn't work quite the same way. And there were no. words that were carried over from Chinese. So you'd have words that sound very similar to each other that in Jap or excuse me, in Chinese would be distinguished by their tone. In Japanese, they're not. So you have to know the language well enough just you know, from pre-existing knowledge to be able to make those distinctions. Uh, and that's very hard to do. Uh, so the decision then became, well, the evolution, not really one person making a decision, then became to try and restore the meaning of the character. So moving away from this thing where they're purely phonetic and back towards something where the characters have an ideographic meaning behind them. Um, but then to represent sounds that were purely grammatical, um, what we call furigana, the characters that sort of modify the grammar, then you have the development of the phonetic syllabary, hiragana, and eventually katakana. Um, yes. So it's this kind of elaborate process of making sense of how do we take a writing system designed for one language, Chinese, and move it over to Japanese, which has a completely different set of rules, which operates totally differently as a language, and which is missing some of the functions of Chinese that make the characters work really well in a Chinese context. Exactly. So you end up with a lot of these these kanji, these hanzi, and taking I don't speak Chinese, uh, and taking these symbols and they kind of morph, right? They kind of morph from like the uh, ones that look like something. They eventually kind of morph into hiragana, and you get ones that look like the oh, that look like man and morphing to a ah sound, and then or anzen into ah sound, and the otoko becomes eventually you know like ka, I believe, mm. and then or ta maybe. And eventually, each one of these turns into the hiragana shape. And then you have kanji. Let's take, for example, uh, hana, which means flower mm. in this particular case. And while it will still mean flower, there's also go there's going to be two readings. The native Japanese reading, now called a kun reading, which is the symbol flower that has hana, how they said it, thrown onto it. But you also have the kind of almost Japaneseified Chinese, the own readings for ka and ke. Mm. Which are also used. Exactly. And a lot of that is a, an outgrowth of attempts to basically port words over directly from Chinese. Um, very often when you see 
the Onyomi being used, it is part of a two-character compound or a more-than-two-character-part compound. That's because a lot of those terms in the original Chinese are two characters, basically because, especially with a tonal language, it makes it easier to understand someone, even if they don't get, even if the tone is not quite clear. Um, if you only hear, you know, part of a word clearly, um, if it's, as long as it's two characters, you can still kind of piece it together a little bit more from context. And that's how a lot of those two character terms end up being mostly onyomi. Um, mm-hmm. So it's all part of this kind of strange linguistic history that is Japanese. And this attempts to, again, take a system not really built for the language and build it into language. <laughs> and kind of they kind of, they kind of not some people some people say it's bastardizing but it's really honestly taking the the symbols and applying it to its own language and a lot of the like the countries around there do the same thing you have the edu with the koreans mm. for example and they took and tried to make their own sounds uh, th- from chinese symbols and they had that for a while and then eventually after king sejong they have they adopted and had the uh, you know the hangul came out and adopted from there but even that went through numerous different changes before it evolved into what we commonly know today absolutely and i mean i think one big advantage that japanese does have is that um that phonetic alphabet the phonetic syllabary um simply because in chinese today there is sort of something of a dispute between the traditional characters and the simplified ones that were developed on the mainland after the rise of the communist party uh, Japanese doesn't really have that issue. You don't have to have this debate of do we simplify a character or not simplify it, uh, simply because if you have a character that's really, you know, has like 30 strokes in it or some nonsense like that, you just write it <laughs> in kana and it works fine. Yep, makes it easy. Just kana makes it, makes it work, makes the world go around. So if you're looking at this, you think, you know, all these symbols came from China and we could have used all these different symbols, but why... What, what what happened to this whole Joyo kanji thing? What what incarnation is this? Why do I only have to memorize two thousand one hundred and thirty six? So that actually is a sort of a post war innovation brought on uh, in part by everybody's favorite uh, global exporter of democracy, the United States of America. Uh, America. Oh yeah. Uh, so in our in the long and complex process by which a bunch of Americans who mostly could find Japan on a map, decided that they were going to remake one of the world's oldest cultures. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the... We're really good oh, at that. We do wonderful jobs. It's a... Actually, check out my podcast. I did a whole series on the uh, U.S. occupation. It was an astonishing feat of ego that worked out, honestly, probably much better than it should have. Um, yeah. So part of the process was to try and actually democratize Japan... Uh, linguistically in a certain sense. Before this point, the language had been kind of two-tiered. There was something closer to modern Japanese that was the common sort of spoken language of you know everyday Japanese people. And then there was a sort of more complex language, more grounded in classical Japanese that was the language of law, of you know politics, uh, the military actually, still relied on it in some circumstances. Uh, So, for example, if you were a Japanese citizen in 1920, you're governed by a constitution that was uh, put into force in 1889, but you probably cannot read it. Uh, It is in classical Japanese. It is very difficult. I have a hard time parsing it in in untranslated form. Good old bungo. Oh, God, it's... 
I still remember my uh, quarter and a half of taking Bungo before I decided that I would never do anything before the Meiji period. Um, I, ha- I actually uh, re- not research, but I also I had a classes from uh, Stephen Carter, the number one, number two, maybe uh, Japanese Bungo expert in the United States who translated a lot of Basho. And holy smokes, that was the most difficult class, yet probably the most rewarding class I've ever taken. God bless. That's I mean I. I struggled through in that first class. I think we what did we work on the whole Jokey. We did a chapter or so of the whole, whole Jokey. That was the oh, last, nice. the last sort of project, and it was so hard. It was it felt great looking back, sort of thing. Oh yeah, I did it, but oh god. So anyway, the American the American vision, um, backed by some reformers within the Japanese governmental bureaucracy, is to essentially remake the language um, by making it easier to understand. So they pick out these joyo kanji, these regular use kanji, and they say, you know, here are the ones you need to know if you are literate. Government uh, sort of documents are only going to use these. They're only going to be written in modern Japanese. So the new constitution, the 1947 constitution that was written by a bunch of Americans uh, locked in a room for a week, uh, is entirely it's modern uh, Japanese. It's totally contemporary, and you would have these you know joyo kanji that are much less of a burden. So the thought was than having to learn this much wider set of classical characters that don't really come up uh, as often. Some of those characters are also simplified in the joyo process. Uh, so for example, uh, the character Gaku or Manabu for studying. Um, mm-hmm. the way in which it's written in Japanese is closer to, um, now I'm stretching my head back to first year Chinese. I think it's identical to the way it's written in simplified Chinese on the mainland, but it's not the, not the traditional character anymore. No, it's, it's slightly different. I believe I, I did some research just to make you look up. I believe that n- about 90 characters or something along those lines were, uh, were simplified. The, like the little crown kind of thing going on over the child in that particular symbol was simplified down so it looks like three little dots instead of this extremely complex bookshelf-looking mm-hmm. thing. And so that decision um, and the, the sort of decision to implement it is what leads to the modern structure of Joyo Kanji and the fact that uh, the Ministry of Education in Japan has way more central authority than the Department of Education in the U.S. does means they can do things like mandate, you know, every first grader will know these kanji by the time they're done. Every second grader will know these and so on and so forth, uh, which is not really right. as easy to do in the United States. <laughs> No, no, and the, uh, those of us who are uh, masochistic enough to actually try to learn all of the symbols that we need to read the newspaper, plus the you know the kanji that we need to learn people's names, for example, we just you know try to shove them all down our throat as many as we can as quick as possible. Oh God, Japanese names! I will be the death of me one day. I'm convinced. Um, I've gotten to the point because yeah. is his name Musashi or is his name Takezo? Exactly. I spend so much time. You know, you you guessed and you feel confident. Oh, you know, I've seen this one before. And then it's some new reading you hadn't hadn't occurred to you. Oh my god! <laughs> it's the special peeve of all people who learn Japanese. I, I I could swear, like honestly, it's you look at the name and they're like, I it could be anything. This name could be anything. Your name could be Yoshiki. Your name should be Tanaka. Your name could be you know something else I haven't even thought of yet. It could be any. I mean. 
when we see like names like just famous people like Murasaki Shikibu or you know anybody like that, or even just like um the uh, the Taida people, that's what we assume they called themselves, but we really don't know. It's a fascinating sort of structure to have to build around for research because on my end, um, you know, when I'm when I was trying to track down certain people whose names I'd come across. I would have to take these very careful notes of, I'm pretty sure this is what the character is, but looking at it, you know, maybe the image is not totally clear or there's a smudge or something. So maybe it could be these ones too. And then I would have to go through and try and like cross-reference that with everything. But then I would have to guess at readings and try to find people, you know, maybe this person went to the United States, in which case their name is going to be written down in Romanized English, but there's no standard spelling for it. So you had to check all these other potential ways it could be spelled too. Oh God. Names are the worst. <laughs> they are pretty rough, but if there is one name they need to memorize as they're going through this podcast is make sure to check out Isaac Meyer on his, uh, uh, criminal records podcast japan history podcast both of them are really really fun everything will be below in the show notes because we are pretty much up on time but uh, i will give you the last word here isaac um if i ask this question of almost everyone that i interview unless they're a native speaker of japanese is if tomorrow your japanese were to all poof disappear out of your head um how would you go about learning it over again well uh, I think a, uh, the biggest secret is really to have a good teacher. So if you're listening to this show, you're already way ahead on that. Um, you know, find someone who makes it interesting. Find someone who ignites the passion and the interest. I've been incredibly lucky in that regard. Uh, shout outs if you're listening to Etsuko Takahashi, Miri Nakamura, uh, Teriko Kalin, uh, or excuse me, uh, Teriko Kawashima, and to Masashi Kato, uh, the four best Japanese teachers in the whole world. Um, and you know, find some, yeah, find someone who ignites the passion, uh, cause that's, what's going to keep you going when you're staring down the barrel of a hundred kanji and you're thinking, why God, why am, you know, why didn't I just learn French? <laughs> because let's face it, this one's much cooler. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that's right, guys. And remember, if you, if you want to become fluent, you need to make mistakes. So let's not be afraid of mistakes because it takes 10,000 mistakes to become fluent. And with that, I'll catch you guys tomorrow where I will be talking about more Japanese grammar. And uh, make sure to check out Isaac's podcast. Everything again will be below in the show notes. And thank you so much. We'll see you later. Until then, Johnny.